I'd like you to turn to that Bible reading this morning, please. That's where we'll be drawing the message from, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 9 to 24, but we'll be concentrating on one verse. And then I'd also like you to look up 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and just put a bookmark in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now I'm going to be dealing with quite a lot of scripture. The reason is for you to have that so that you'll be able to look at it and study it later on. Uh, there's no time to look at each particular verse. So if you've got a pen and a bit of paper, uh, just get ready to write these verses down. The other thing I think is so important when it comes to reading or studying our Bibles is that we're able to write cross-references in our margin. So if there's a particular topic, if there's a particular verse, and that we're inquiring about that verse, we can write these references in our margin so that later on we can look at them again and study them and see how they relate to the particular verse that we're looking at. Let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, thank Thee for this time. Thank Thee for Thy holy word. And we just ask, gracious Father, that Thou will bless this morning that God the Holy Spirit will have free reign. Father, we plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the preaching this morning, for we pray this in His name, the Lord Jesus Christ, with thanksgiving. Amen. There's one particular book that came into my library in the 1980s, which apart from the Bible was just a tremendous help and a tremendous blessing to me. In 1981, I started or I attended my first church as pastor and I felt so helpless in trying to help the people that God had entrusted to me. Yes, I knew theology and all that sort of thing and I've been to Bible college, but when you actually get involved in a local church, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with individuals, you're dealing with people who have problems, you're dealing with people who are looking for answers to situations in their daily lives. And I felt as though I was having trouble trying to help them in their search for victory in their lives. And this book that I had in my possession, actually it was a, it was a three volume set and it was written by Watchman Nee. And it was called The Spiritual Man. And I decided to read that. And this man gives a whole lot of scripture and he puts it all together on this one particular topic. And I remember he wrote that when he was planning this book, he said he had tremendous opposition from the spirit world. And I understood what he wrote because I could see why the enemy, the devil, didn't want this book to come into the hands of God's people. And that was the beginning of my journey in order to be able to help my brothers and sisters in Christ in victory rather than walking in the flesh. So we are going to be looking at the topic of the inner workings of man. 
because that's what this watchman knee was dealing with, the inner workings of man. So let's ask a few questions of ourselves to begin with. Number one, what happens within ourselves in our walk with the Lord? Are we able to understand that? Are we able to explain it? How do we understand these inner workings? Do we even know what takes place? What does the Bible specifically say about the inner workings of the believer? If we know and if we understand what happens, we'll be able to have victory rather than to be confused in our own spiritual walk and wonder what's going on. So get ready to write some of these references down. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be looking specifically at verse 23. But the context has tremendous significance because from our perspective, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour and we want to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to please Him that there are certain characteristics within our life, within our Christian experience that will come out. And these are some of the things that are written here in this particular passage. And I want you to look at verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And it says there, we're to edify one another. And I like to look at the meaning of words. And this word edify has a reference to building a house or erecting a building, and it means to build up from the foundation. It's interesting when a person gets saved, that's exactly what happens. And if you tie that in with the verse that, we be, that we're looking at specifically here, in verse 23, this is a reference to the body. All right. there, there are certain things that need to take place in our bodies in order to be conformed like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this is to edify. We need to do this to each other. We need to build one another up. We need to edify one another. And then I want you to note uh, in verses 12 to 13, and in verses 12 to 13, uh, it's an important passage from our perspective because it's relating to our spiritual leader or to our leaders. And I'd like you to give you my own view or my own position on that. We have a pastor here. We all know his name, don't we? He's Dennis Smith. But it tells us here in verses 12 to 13 that we are to esteem him very highly in love for his work's sake, because there's only one pastor we have. And that being the case, I believe that we owe it to him to respect the office that he holds. And he holds the office of a pastor or a bishop or an under-shepherd. That's his office. And from my perspective... I, in respect to his office, I call him pastor or I call him preacher. Okay, I, I recognize the office that he holds and I hold that in very high esteem. That's my way also of acknowledging the Lord, what it says in this particular verse here. And look at verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and it tells us there that we're to, we're to warn the unruly. 
Now, the word unruly means disorderly or out of rank, and it's often referred to uh, among soldiers. So you can see here from a, from a body, from a local church perspective, how it's important that we try to minister and help each other. And if any brother or sister seems to walk disorderly, that we try to help them and that we try to encourage them to get back into line. Not to do what we say, but to get back into line in serving the Lord, in being faithful and obedient to the Lord. Now, when it comes to the body, uh, many Christians believe that it's, it's not really important uh, as to uh, what happens from a Christian perspective. And this is why I ask you to put a book, bookmark in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right? Now, have a look at this, what it says in verses 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. So the uh, body is a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So in relation to verse 24, you can underline that word body and put the cross-reference on your margin to 1 Corinthians 16, 3, 16 and 17. Now, by looking at this, these verses, isn't it interesting that a man who defiles the body, the temple of a believer, what happens? God will destroy that body. So it says, if any man, what does that mean? That includes yourself. As a believer, you defile your temple, God will destroy the body. It's nothing to do with salvation, okay? I'm not talking about salvation, but I'm talking about chastening when somebody defiles the body. So again, it is important from a spiritual perspective, from a believer's perspective, that they don't defile their own bodies. Now, uh, go to, uh, we're looking at verse 14 again. It says, comfort the feeble-minded. Now, when we think of a feeble mind, we think somebody's got a few screw loose up top, all right? But that's not what this means. The word feeble-minded means little-spirited or faint-hearted. Sometimes God's people, they get discouraged. Don't we? I know I do at times, and I think you do as well. You get discouraged. And at that point of time, at that discouragement, you don't need somebody kicking you in the stomach, do you? You don't need somebody having a shot at you. You need somebody who will encourage you, who will help you because of the spirit that you have uh, lost in that sense. All right? We're to comfort them in that respect. It says support the weak, those that are without strength. Can you see the importance of relationship that we have as one believer to the other? How we're supposed to encourage and build one another? And it also tells us in this passage that we're to be patient. You know the word patient means? To be long-spirited. 
not to lose heart. And how many times have you heard people say, I need patience, I need patience. Okay, uh, and we do, don't we? But something important about that, and you can write that, can underline that word and write the reference, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, and let me read it to you. You can look at it later on. It says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So if God wants to teach you Patience, what can you expect? That's right. See, the Christian experience is not a cloud nine, is it? There are, sometimes we go through some real difficult times and then if we don't understand it, if we don't know what's going on, we get frustrated and we get confused and we say to the Lord, why is this happening to me? And maybe we start thinking... Lord, are you, are you trying to teach me to be patient? <laughs> and that's real hard, but that's what it's referring to here. We're to be patient. In verse 19, we're to not quench the Holy Spirit. The idea of quenching there means to extinguish or to suppress or stifle. A Christian, a believer, will never lose the Holy Spirit. Once the Holy Spirit indwells a believer at salvation. The Bible says we are sealed until the day of our redemption. You'll never lose your salvation. But we can cause the Holy Spirit to stop working in, our, in a believer's life. And this is where, again, we can get into all sorts of strife. So what does it say? If we want to be spiritual, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And, and look what it says in verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Remember what we said about proving before? I've talked about this topic. But it's like testing of metals. Whether it's pure. And when we prove all things in our Christian experience, we're going to learn. And we're going to find out there are some things in our lives, in a believer's life, that's not good. And so what do we do with that? We get rid of it. All right? But we do hold on to the things that are good. That's how you grow. Okay, now, verse 22, again, it is especially addressed to the body. Verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Appearance means the external or the outward appearance. And I have seen many Christians balk at that and not be aware of it. Something that they do, something that happens, something that we do in our lives, from our perspective it might be completely innocent, but, as, but people looking out there they say, something's wrong there, that's sus. You shouldn't be doing that. And you turn around and say, well, I'm completely innocent of this situation, but from our perspective, if we're spiritual, we're going to look at the other side. And we're going to say to ourselves, what sort of appearance is it betraying? And, and I recall, I have to give you this illustration, but uh, I live in a village. It's a little, a little two-bedroom place. And uh, this lady came on the scene. She was a Christian. And she asked if my room was available for rent. 
And she, I nearly fell over backwards. I said, I said to her, I said, lady, that's not really appropriate. <laughs> now, if I'd have said yes, and I could have come around and said, oh, look, everything, everything is innocent, everything is right. But what is it? It's an appearance of evil. You know how the world thinks, okay? So you don't do it. And that's the spiritual things that we need to be so aware of. Now, verse 23 is the verse that I want to hone in on. And it starts there by saying that the very God of peace, it says, sanctify you holy. Now, first of all, look at the word holy. That's everything, isn't it? So we are to be sanctified in spirit. We are to be sanctified in soul. And we are to sanctify it in our bodies, okay? All three are to be sanctified, not just one. How many entities do you see here in verse 23? How many entities is it talking about? Now, when I read this verse, I can see three, okay? But no, says the Reformed theologian, there's two. And you look down at this verse and you think, what? That's what they believe. There's two entities. They believe in soul and body. Okay? And let me just uh, quote some theologian. And I had this theology book. So if you're going to Bible college and, and you want to study Reformed theology at Bible college or uh, you, want to, uh, you want to see what they have to say about this particular thing, obviously... You, and you study systematic theology, this man will come up for sure. His name is Louis Burkhoff. All right? So I'm quoting from his systematic theology book. And this is what he has to write about this particular verse. And he says, and I quote, It is customary, especially in Christian circles, to conceive of man as consisting of two and only two distinct parts, namely body and soul. This view is technically called dichotomy. So you just learned a $50 word. Alongside of it, however, another made its appearance to the effect that human nature consists of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. It is designated by the term trichotomy. So there's dichotomy, di meaning two, and tri meaning three. The tripartite conception of man, listen, originated in Greek philosophy. Now you know where the three parts come from. You believe that, don't you? Which conceived of the relation of the body and the spirit of man to each other after the analogy of the mutual relationship between the material universe and God. Now, let me give you a reference, a quote from Wikipedia, all right, on the early church. Why I do this is sometimes people get the impression that I'm just given my version of the things, all right, to suit myself. But this is what they say. This is what Burkhoff believed. Now, from Wikipedia, on the early church, 
The tripartite view of man was considered an orthodox interpretation in the first three centuries of the church. And many of the early church fathers taught that man is made up of body, soul and spirit. However, there arose primarily three historical errors, the fear of which have caused a prejudice against trichotomy, the pseudo-Gnostic view, the Apollinarian error and the semi-Pelagian error. But Dillich argues, in the face of all these errors, its opponents must confess that man may be regarded trichotomically without in the least degree implying the adoption of such erroneous views. Now, why did I say all that? Why I say all that is that just believe what you read, okay? If you see three parts, that's what it is. Don't be led by some turkey who tells you there's two, and then you have to believe everything they say. You know, isn't it incredible the Bible likens people to what? Sheep. What's the characteristic of sheep? They're dumb. They're dumb. Okay? And uh, what's the characteristic of sheep? They follow the lead sheep. And when the lead sheep falls into the ditch, what happens to the other sheep? They follow right behind. We don't want to be like that. Amen? We want to do what God teaches us and what God shows up. So, just believe what you read and take the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, sanctify your holy, verse 23 of, of 1 Thessalonians. So the reference is to body, soul and spirit is to be sanctified. Now, let me give you the definition of the word sanctification. That's a $50 word, okay? Most of you know what it, what it means, but I'm going to give you the definition anyway. The word sanctify means to make holy. So in our walk with the Lord, when you get saved, what happens? You're expected to be made holy. That is, and it says ceremoniously, purify or consecrate. Purify or consecrate. Mentally... It means venerate. So that, that, that word there I have to look up again. And it means reverence. And that means fear mingled with respect. Fear mingled with respect and esteem. I'll give you a verse just to, just to uh, top that all off for you to look at later on. Okay? Proverbs chapter... 9 verse 10, the word of God says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. That's what this is referring to in this word sanctification. So let's look at the first part, and incidentally in verse 24, uh, 23, I'm sorry, when we're talking about words, the original language, the Greek language, always puts the most important words first. So now we begin to realize that the most important part of the three parts of man is what? It's spirit. 
all right? It's the spirit of man. And it is the spirit of man that communes with God. It is with the spirit of man that we are said to be God conscious. All right. It is through the spirit of man that we that God the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, he guides, he communes through the spirit of man. It's when God speaks to us and guides us, when we worship, when the Holy Spirit teaches us, when leading, when controlling, all that takes place from the Holy Spirit to the spirit of man, to your spirit and my spirit. Scripture. Now, I want you to turn to these verses and we're going to look at five passages. So bear with me, okay? But I'd like you to turn to them. You write them down, but it is so important for us to look at these verses in relation to the spirit and how that follows in because that's kind of looked upon as an area that's not really well known amongst the believer. I want you to go to John chapter 4, please, in your Bibles. John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, we are dealing with the woman at the well. It's a beautiful passage there. And we see how this lady, incredible, how she got saved. And after she got saved, the tremendous witness that she was for the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, this is to back up the spirit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, okay? So if you want to do it, underline the word spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5 and write the cross-reference, John chapter 4, verse 24. It says that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, in your spirit, in the spirit of the believer and in truth. Sometimes we forget the last little bit, and in truth. There is no worshipping without spirit and without truth. Okay? That is so crucial. And hence, with the word truth there, I want to expand that to the next verse that we're going to be looking at, and that is found in Hebrews chapter 4. A well-known verse, an important verse, a crucial verse, a verse that you should always try to remember that it's there. Okay? In the Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to look, if you will, please, at verse 12 and you begin to understand. It says, for the word of God, what's that talking about? What's the word of God? The Bible. Okay? For the word of God is quick. What does that mean? It's alive. Isn't that incredible? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and, and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So that's the purpose of the Bible, of the Word of God in the life of a believer. Who, it's referred to here as a sword. Okay, the Word of God is a sword. 
And that's the only thing that is capable of separating the spirit of man from the soul of man. This is where the reformers get all confused. They say it's one, but here we have a verse that only the word of God can pierce it. And what does that mean? What is the indication here that this word of God is actually able to enter our thoughts and the intents in our hearts? And you know yourself, when you first get saved, there's a lot of things that you didn't know about spiritual things. It's all new. You're a new creature. So you have to learn all this. And then you find out, as you're progressing along, what about your thought life? It's all screwed up. It's confused. And hence, what you thought was good and what you thought was right, right, you find out through the scriptures that, hey, it's not true and it's not right and your thinking needs to change in some of these areas. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. So you can straight away look within yourself and say, what are the things that go through my mind? What are the things that, are, that, that I think about? And hence, this verse is so important. Now, let's look at this sword, okay? I want you to go now to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6. So there's another reference there. All right, remember we worship in spirit, in our spirit and in truth. We see we're talking about the word of God here. Now, how is it used and who uses it? In Ephesians chapter 6, I want you to look at verse 17. It says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There it is. So when the Holy Spirit enters a believer at salvation, then the Holy Spirit's work is the will this sword that is sharper than any two-edged sword, all right? And he wields it and he seeks to bring about entering the thinking life of an individual, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The intents has to do with the will, the things that you make up your mind to do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So we, you can see there that the, it's crucial that our spirit be responsive and that we do commune with God. Because there's another thing that this uh, Thessalonian passage talks about, and that is the soul. The soul is the, is the inner you. It is the person that you are. It is the person that you know to be. It is the person that you know that you exist. Because somebody comes up to you and says, excuse me, how do you know that you're you? And you think, what a stupid question. But when you think of it, how do you know that you're you? How do you know that you're not just some figured figment of your own imagination and that everything is fantasy? How? Through the Spirit of God. You know, through the soul, you know who you are and you know that you exist. Now, within the soul of man, there are three entities in that. 
What makes up our souls? The three things are intellect, emotion, and will. Okay? Intellect, emotion, and will. And we find in Scripture that when it comes to the word soul, there is another word that can be used interchangeably from soul. It's the word heart. H-E-A-R-T, the heart of man. Okay? It's the same thing as saying the soul. All right? And uh, when, you, when you think of that, we say the soul or the heart is here and yet within the intellect, the intellect's actually in the head, isn't it? It's in the brain. All right? Intellect, emotions, your feelings and your will. So it seems to be more it's up here rather than it's down here. This is just a massive pump, okay, pumping blood through the system. It's up here that's really uh, the, the crucial thing. Now, Dr. Stephen might, uh, I don't know what he's thinking about that. I'll check with him afterwards. But anyway, this is how I see scripture uh, to refer to the soul. Now, the order is important, the intellect, the emotion and the will. It's important. Right? Intellect should be first in the soul, then the emotions, then the will. But in most times in this day and age, the intellect and the emotions are turned around. So that people will go on their emotions. How many times have you heard it say, oh, I feel this. And, and, and when you ask opinion, you say, well, I feel that. That doesn't feel right. And I feel this. And, and uh, when we talk about love between two people, the only thing, generally speaking, in this day and age when we talk about love is, is how we feel toward one another. Isn't that true? And so nowadays, I have a feeling towards... Uh, towards my wife, and then later on down the road, oh, I don't have a feeling towards them anymore, so the party's over. I'll go somewhere else. Isn't that the normal philosophy? We go by our emotions. When we take in a worship service, be careful that we don't choose according to our emotions. Yeah. Uh, when you think of it, and, and music is a very strong mover, you know that. Okay? I grew up in the rock and roll era. So have a guess what type of music I really love. 50s, 60s music. And it, it was just absolutely brilliant. When I got saved and I went to church, I'm thinking, oh man, this is horrible. Come on, hymns is horrible. It sounds like a funeral dirge. Okay? But then I began to realise or I began to understand that God has his music. And because God has hit music, it was my responsibility to find out what it was. So that I could no longer pick and choose what I like, because if I like something, and definitely it wouldn't be what God honouring. So I had to begin to change and I had to expose myself to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And after a while, have a guess what? I like the stuff. 
okay? And then when I go and visit somewhere and they got all the boogie music up on stage and whatever, you think, that is just hor that's off the world, okay? And people get offended at that, all right? They say, oh, listen, you're back with the dark ages. But this is what I'm referring to. In, instead of going by the intellect, they go by their emotion. The whole aim of the spiritual man is to move the will of man in the soul. Intellect, emotion and will. That's the whole aim. The Holy Spirit wants to move your will and my will. The flesh wants to move your will and my will. Okay? And uh, depending on which way it goes will determine the kind of believer or the kind of Christian that you are. There are believers who will be weak-willed weak towards the things of God and strong-willed towards the world. And there are believers who are the other way around because they've allowed sanctification and the Spirit of God to change their lives. Regardless, one way or the other, that will gets moved. And of course, let's look at the body. That's the easiest one because that's, I'm looking at bodies and you're looking at me. Okay? And it's understood when it comes to the body, it's a house. It's a house. It is the dwelling place of your spirit and it's the dwelling place of your soul. In a believer, it's also the dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit. Didn't we look at a, a, that, that verse not long ago? All right? That we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's his house. Isn't it incredible to think that you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, are actually indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the Bible teaches that where one person is evidenced, the other two are there as well because it's a trinity and the three are one. So a believer is indwelt by God. And when you get saved, you receive the nature of God, it says in Peter. Okay? A tendency. And isn't it's just incredible to think of that and sometimes you wonder why you do the things that you do because you're doing it literally in the presence of the living God and we think we do things silently uh, our thought life we think about this and we think about that but you know who has access to that don't you God the Holy Spirit he knows what you think he knows what I think and sometimes it's not very nice sometimes it's not very honoring and so with the body we are said to be world conscious world conscious and there are five gates in the body no doubt you're aware of it that lead to the soul all right there's the gate of sight there's the gate of smell there's the gate of hearing taste and touch so we are world conscious through these gates. Information comes in from the outside through these gates. The most important gate of all, according to scripture, is the eye or it's the eyes. Okay, I'm going to give you a scripture reference to that so that you can write it down for your later study. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, relating the eye gate. It says, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? So the things that we look at, the things that we see, gives information to the soul and it causes a response within the soul. So we've got to be careful what we're looking at. We've got to be really careful what we three, what we see. The order of man is important. As I said, spirit has to come first, soul and body last. So that's the order. And when it comes to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, when he indwells the believer, he communes with our spirit. He teaches and he guides. And the aim is that the spirit passes it on to the soul, to the intellect and to the emotions. All right. So we, we, we take it in and we think about it and we meditate upon that. Once that's taken place, then our will moves into action. And sometimes when the information comes through from the Holy Spirit, what does the soul say? What does the intellect say? No. No, I'm not going to do it. I don't, I don't feel that's right. <laughs> no. And then what happens then? You've got conflict. Because the spirit fights against the flesh. There's always a struggle and a battle. And it tells us very, very clearly that when it comes to, when it comes to the battle that rages within, God the Holy Spirit wants control of the whole person. And this is what it means in Ephesians chapter 5. Be filled with the Spirit. That word filled, it means the word control. He wants to control us. And yet when you consider, uh, look at an unsaved person. An unsaved person has no Holy Spirit. There's still three parts, all right? The Spirit, the soul and the body is still there. But because the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell, the Holy Spirit doesn't teach or doesn't guide or doesn't point the way. So the Spirit is active, but it's separated from God. It's said to be dead in trespasses and sin. And so the very best that an unsafe person can do is still to be controlled by his or her spirit, but not God the Holy Spirit. You, you remember the term in the Old Testament that talks about familiar spirits? You know what that's referring to, familiar spirits? They're spirits that stay with the family from one generation to the other. And sometimes you hear of people who believe in reincarnation and they say, oh, little Susie here has had, has, can, can relate to her previous life. Well, little Susie's able to do that because the familiar spirits who stay with the family from one generation to the other has told her. This is where the realm of, the, of, of demons comes into it. This is, this is where the realm of Satan comes into it. And you've heard of people who are supposed to be psychic. Okay? They go to fortune tellers and all that type of thing, witch doctors. Who do you think controls them? Not the Holy Spirit, but their spirit still controls them, but they're the evil spirits. Okay? 
Isn't it good that when we get saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us and that can no longer happen? And 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 I thank the Lord for that. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit wants to pass on the information down, move the will, and then the body begins to, be, begins to move. In the unsafe person, that never happens. The best they can do is live by their spirits or live by, the, by their intellect. All right? I think this or I think that, and that's what I'm going to do. But they've got no guidance or what have you. The worst unsafe person is where they're governed by their bodies, <coughs> by their cravings or by their lusts. And you can see that when somebody who's addicted to drugs, everything has to do with drugs. The body drives the soul and their spirits for more and more drugs. And hence, the spirit needs to be quickened or made alive. So what I'm saying is when it comes to our Christian experience, the Holy Spirit wants to control our life, okay, through the, through the Word of God. Ephesians 5, 18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, I just said, but be filled with the Spirit. And because spiritual things are foreign to a new believer, they find it hard initially to begin with. All right? You've grown up with your sinful nature. That's what you normally do. And then all of a sudden, there's something new comes into it. And there's a tremendous struggle. And you're trying to deal with it and you're trying to understand it. All right? It's the Holy Spirit who comes in and then wants to guide and, and, and wants, to, wants to show us. And that Holy Spirit is constantly convicting us. That sort of the Spirit, God willing, God's people are reading their Bible. He wants to use that sword. And He wants to sanctify us wholly. He wants to change us. But sometimes when we say no, that's what constitutes the carnal Christian. Or if we say a worldly Christian. A worldly Christian. Somebody who says no to God even though they're saved. Somebody who doesn't listen to the Holy Spirit and and do what the Holy Spirit says. Someone who wants to do what they want to do. Who wants to have control of their life. That's the carnal or the worldly Christian. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a carnal Christian or a worldly Christian, there's, there's no difference between them and an unsaved person. And sometimes people say, oh, I'm a Christian, you think. Unbelievable. Unbelie- Are you Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. But yet the evidence shows otherwise. Okay? Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I don't know. But the testimony shows that they're living like the world. And so the question in closing, we need to pose, to us, pose and ask ourselves, where do I stand in this? Where do I stand in my sanctification? Do I say yes to God? Or don't I, don't I know? And am I, am I reading my Bible and allowing God the Holy Spirit to use it in my life? You're going to get sick of me saying that but you need to read your Bible every day. Every day. Preferably four chapters a day. Two in the old and two in the new. That's how the Holy Spirit can work. And then he begins to change our thinking. 
All right? And as he changes our thinking, what happens? Sanctification takes place. And I'll give you the definition of sanctification, just one word, and I'm finished. The word sanctify means change. God expects change in his people. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do thank thee for thy precious word. And we have to confess, gracious Father, that some things are difficult. Some things we struggle at. Some things in our lives the flesh says no. Some parts in our lives, when we're convicted, convicted our flesh says no. We want to live how we want to live. We want to go by our feelings. If it feels good, that that's when we do it. And so, gracious Father, we pray that from our perspective, that in our will, that we might be strong and have a desire to obey the Spirit of God through his word. And as we do, gracious Father, our thinking will change and that we will become more conformed to the image of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.